Hey, y'all. It's the NPR Politics Podcast. The Republican National Convention here in Cleveland is officially over. We made it. Uh, We got the grand finale from Donald Trump himself. I humbly and gratefully accept your nomination for the presidency of the United States. There you go. So this is our last daily episode for this convention. Let's talk about Trump's big night. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. I'm Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. And I'm Ron Elving, editor-correspondent. And And what you hear in the background is balloons being popped systematically by what appear to be arena arena employees who don't want to try to herd balloons. They would rather sweep up little plastic things. There are what? Is it thousands? Thousands thousands of balloons. And how many dumpsters do you think it would take to fit all those balloons in a dumpster unpopped? But couldn't we make many children happy? We could. We could. Yeah. Anyway, there were thousands that were actually up in the rafters all week. And, waiting. And, and, and amazingly down. enough, they were red, white, and blue, Sam. What? You don't say. Yeah. And I had never seen this before, but it's crazy to see it. I mean, you've seen it on TV, but like standing in here in the hall, it's like, it's literally raining balloons and it's confetti for like minutes. It, it is. It's really cool. It. It's really fun. Yeah, absolutely. So this is it. This is probably our last episode for the week. Don't cry, dear listeners. Uh, we will see what happens with Hillary Clinton's VP announcement in the next few days. More on that later. Um, so, you guys, what a week. Sarah, this was your first convention, my first convention. Yeah. Ron, you're we know a pro. It's way up in the teens. Yeah. But, like, this was a week, no? It was. And it was really, I mean, after seeing a number of these things, this one stands very much apart because the candidate and the candidate's team were taking over the Republican national apparatus, of course, but they were also, to some degree, still at war with it, still at odds with it, not comfortable with a lot of the convention conventionalities, and they wanted to do things differently, and they wanted it to be exciting, and they also lost control on several kind of key moments. For at least three of the four nights this week, I was asking myself the question, who was actually in charge here? And tonight, it seemed to not be the case. Like, I, it felt coherent and felt on message. But for yeah, a while, tonight, I was like, what's going on? Because, I mean, you know, the speaker lists that came out were, I mean, they felt kind of random. And you had these celebrities, like really D-list celebrities earlier this week, like Antonio Sabato Jr. and Scott Bayo, And, you know, people we haven't heard from in a while. But then you, you get around to today, and it felt frankly different than the rest of the week. That's right. And it was it was clearly a Trump production tonight because the big stars at the end were clearly Ivanka, who was great, yeah. Oh, yeah. and her dad, who was, well, he was Donald Trump to the max and beyond. More than 90 minutes and every single minute boffo Donald Trump. So the moment when Trump comes out, um, the room was lit up. My father and our next president, Donald J. Trump. And there was dramatic music, his name plastered on all the jumbotrons, and I think that music itself was uh, the theme from Air Force One. Well, that fits because Air Force One, as a movie, is a Hollywood conception of what the presidency is all about, huh. and. Donald Trump might very well be described in similar terms. And you know, a lot of times uh, when Trump is doing a busy day of rallies, he'll pop in, you know, if he's got multiple events, sometimes the middle of the day will be just popping into an airport hangar somewhere on his plane. And a lot of times the crowd will be waiting, the hangar's open on one side, the sun's streaming in, and all of a sudden you hear that just looming theme from Air Force One and the Trump plane flies across the sky, and the crowd gets really excited. And uh, 
we felt a little bit of that again tonight. Yeah. So let's get to the big moment where Trump really hit on the theme of this speech. Our convention occurs at a moment of crisis for our nation. The attacks on our police and the terrorism of our cities threaten our very way of life. Any politician who does not grasp this danger is not fit to lead our country. And, you know, the thing that kind of struck me is we had, you know, again, this this moment at the beginning of the speech where there was a lot of excitement. It was very sweet, you know, Donald Trump hugging his daughter Ivanka, who had introduced him. But, you know, pretty quickly he gets into the speech and the, the mood and the tone really shifts. And it becomes, you know, really quite dark talking about terrorism and national security and police being shot and uh, just... You know, really, uh, the atmosphere of, of fear, I think, is, is the operative word there that a lot of people are feeling. Americans watching this address tonight have seen the recent images of violence in our streets and the chaos in our communities. Many have witnessed this violence personally. Some have even been its victims. I have a message for all of you. The crime and violence that today afflicts our nation will soon, and I mean very soon, come to an end. He's been stressing this a lot more the last couple weeks on the campaign trail and really talking about this law and order theme really ever since the Dallas shootings of the five police officers. In this race for the White House, I am the law and order candidate. Yes, and let's make reference to law and order being a phrase that has quite a history in American politics. Yeah. In the 1960s, uh, we heard a great deal about law and order, uh, first in resistance to the civil rights movement, and then Richard Nixon's 1968 presidency. His 1968 campaign was largely about law and order, and that was a phrase that was used quite often in an atmosphere of social unrest over the Vietnam War and also riots, really. I mean, real, honest-to-God broad-scale riots with many, many deaths in the cities, large portions of the cities burned down, including Washington, D.C., in that spring just before Richard Nixon was nominated for president on his law and order platform. Yeah, and, and you know, in some ways there are parallels between what's happening right now in 1968, but in many ways there are not. You know, there is a level of racial unrest that we're seeing in the country right now. Um, this is a different time, right? Differences of degree matter and scale matters. But the kinds of fear that are evoked by using this kind of language and by seizing on certain incidents, even isolated incidents, terrible and tragic as they may be, still isolated incidents, and trying to make of them some kind of overarching pattern as though this was an everyday occurrence in America, that seems to me to be out of proportion and out of time. And you know, he was on tone. Uh, on message. He read mostly from two teleprompters. It was not off the cuff. It did not feel nearly as sometimes out of control as the rest of this week did. And yet it was enough like Donald Trump at his most effective. That is to say, maybe a little bit impromptu, a little spontaneous, a little bit the way people really talk, that it was connecting to his audience, both here in the hall and at home on television, who respond to that kind of presentation. Yeah. And so, you know, besides Law & Order, he also talked about making the case against Hillary Clinton. After 15 years of wars in the Middle East, after trillions of dollars spent, 
and thousands of lives lost. The situation is worse than it has ever been before. This is the legacy of Hillary Clinton. Death, destruction, terrorism, and weakness. And, you know, Trump also talked about uh, this rigged system, a theme that he's been hitting on all year. Um, and there was a weird line about that. I have joined the political arena so that the powerful can no longer beat up on people who cannot defend themselves. Nobody knows the system better than me. I didn't see on the screen. Mm -hmm. Which of us saw it? He did a very particular face. He looked like a little naughty boy who had just gotten caught. Which is why I alone can fix it. Like, like maybe, uh, maybe I really know how to work that system. Wink, wink. He didn't wink. He didn't nudge. But he made a face like, <laughs> what do you expect me to do? I'm a New York real estate developer. It reminded me of how uh, he sometimes says at rallies, he says, you know, I, I used to be the establishment. It wasn't that long ago that I was part of the establishment. And so, you know, he kind of sells himself as like, you know, I get the system so I can, I can fix it, I can break it, I can, you know, rewrite it, whatever. There was another moment sort of like that where he made another little boy got caught face when he was saying, you know, I want to thank the evangelicals and the religious community. They've given me tremendous support. Because I'll tell you what, the support that they've given me, and I'm not sure I totally deserve it. <laughs> then the he went jar. on. Yes, right. So hand nice. in the cookie jar. He made another face like that. But, you know, the crowd loved it. They, yeah, they took it again with a kind of in the right spirit, kind of, oh, we get it. It's all sort of lighthearted. And it's kind of the sign. It's like he can never really tamper all of the Trump. Like, it, it's not a thing that he can do. Like, he was on script, on message, but you saw those flashes of him there. And I have to say, I heard that line a little differently, Ron. And now that you say this, I, I mean, your interpretation could totally be right. But I actually heard it as maybe a little bit of a, a genuine gesture to evangelicals of almost like, well, you know, an acknowledgement that, like, I really don't I don't meet your criteria, but you've come around, and thanks. It's, it's something he worked pretty hard to accomplish, and, uh, and they've pretty much fallen in line. And who knows, maybe I'll actually repent someday of something. To use a theological term. Yeah. You know, and so we also got a change of tone from Trump on this Muslim ban that he had been proposing for a while during this campaign. We must immediately suspend immigration from any nation that has been compromised by terrorism until such time as proven vetting mechanisms have been put in place, we don't want them in our country. His, his position on this has, has shifted and morphed and been massaged a number of times since his original press release where he famously got up and read from a statement and, and called for the banning of all Muslims from entering the U.S. He's been pressed by this by those of us in the press corps over and over again, asked exactly who he would ban, from what countries, how, after the Orlando shooting, you may remember, he came out and, and said something close to what he said tonight at the convention, essentially countries with a terrorist presence. He still has yet to tell us which countries those would be and how you would define what a terrorist presence is. That would be useful, wouldn't it? Uh, if we're talking about countries that have been compromised by terrorism, does he mean state-sponsored terrorism, or does he mean places where terrorists seem to be operating, such as France? I think what Trump is realizing is that he can't come out and say, essentially, 
no one from Muslim countries. Well, that's a religious test. It's explicitly forbidden by the Constitution. So there was very little foreign policy detail in this speech. Uh, what we did hear a lot from Trump is this idea that he's said for a while now that America is not respected around the world. We have a clip of that. As long as we are led by politicians who will not put America first, then we can be assured that other nations will not treat America with respect, the respect that we deserve. Yeah, this is another place where Donald Trump sounds a lot like Richard Nixon in the 1960s and 1970s. But here again, what does he mean by respected? How do we know we are respected? To me, the term he was evoking, even as he used the word respect, was fear. We are not feared anymore. If we were feared more, we'd be respected more. We would get better trade deals. People would not try to push us around. And we aren't feared enough. Well, and then there was this talk of tonight and also in this interview with The New York Times where he implied that the U.S. would not have the obligation to fully defend its allies unless they fulfilled their obligations to us. That's right. They have to devote 2% of their national product every year to defense, uh, or else they aren't doing their part to support NATO. But, but what he said last night, while that was what he was talking about, what he said was that if someone got attacked, say, by Russia, uh, we would not necessarily go to their aid unless they'd paid their bills. And that is quite different from the position of every single United States president since 1949 when they formed NATO and certainly in the years since we added all those countries on the border of Russia. But really consistent with the kinds of things Trump has been saying that this idea that America is, is sort of being used and we're helping out all these countries that aren't doing anything for us. We hear this a lot from Donald Trump. It, it's right in line with that. There was one really interesting moment from this night that was not all the way scripted. Um, Trump said... Uh, when discussing Orlando, he said that he wanted to help protect the LGBTQ community from terrorism. As your president, I will do everything in my power to protect our LGBTQ citizens from the violence and oppression of a hateful foreign ideology. Believe me. So the crowd cheers. And then Trump says, I'm glad that you guys cheered that line. And I have to say, as a Republican, it is so nice to hear you cheering for what I just said. Thank you. And so this happens at a convention where the platform itself was called by many people anti-gay and lesbian. The, the platform promotes what is called natural marriage marriage between one man and one woman. And there is also other language that uh, supports or there are people involved in the convention and in the platform who have been involved in the past in conversion therapy. So what does this mean about the stance of the party on issues like these? You had Peter Thiel, who was openly gay, speak tonight. Peter Thiel, the tech billionaire, founder of PayPal. Because Donald Trump, Trump wanted him. Yes. Then you had Trump say what he said about this community. But the platform is what it is. Like, what does this say about the actual place of the party on these issues. I think it says the party is, as it is in, I think, many other ways, figuring it out. Yeah. I mean, what Ron was referring to, uh, this idea of natural marriage, that's really, to a large degree, a product of the influence that, that Christian conservatives have had on the party for so long. That reflects a theological belief by a lot of evangelicals that God designed man for woman and vice versa, and that that is the way things ought to be. And this is a strong belief by, I'm sure, many people on the convention floor. 
but it was a it was a, a really uh, I think unexpected moment that that I never would have predicted happening in 2016 to have everybody on the floor of the Republican National Convention basically applauding the idea of protecting gays and lesbians. But if you watched the crowd carefully, you saw... Not everyone was cheering. Not everyone was cheering on every line by any means. And into the 70, 80, 90th minute, people were starting to be a little worn out. It's been a long week, and these can be kind of grueling sessions. And I think what I saw from the floor, I talked to a delegate from from Colorado, and I said, how are you liking this? Uh, He's not a Trump supporter, and he said, I was hoping for Trump uh, to be somewhat presidential and to talk about how he would do things, actually how he would do things. And, he, and, and this guy from Colorado said, I heard neither thing. But he wasn't booing. He was just quiet. That's right. And there's a certain amount, I mean, there is a lot of theater involved here. And if you go down on the floor and you walk around among the delegates, you'll see uh, people whose job it is to really, you know, really sort of cheerleading. I mean, I saw several of those folks the other night uh, loudly cheering certain lines. So, I mean... It's a show. Speaking of loud cheers, there was one kind of weird moment tonight. Uh, the crowd was cheering, I believe, Yes, You Will. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Well, okay. You're smiling. Uh, I'm just going to say I can't see how one would miss the similarity to Yes, We Can. Yeah. Uh, Obama. 2008, which was a highly successful, not just chant, but ethos for that whole campaign uh, during the spring, during the summer, and into the fall. Uh, Si se puede was the the Spanish version. And it's kind of this really interesting counterpoint to the thematic differences between Obama's first campaign and this campaign. So much of Obama's campaign in 08 was there was so much hope in this country, there was so much going for us. It it was quite forward-looking and saying the best days might be ahead. And Donald Trump's speech tonight was saying, we're in a very, very bad, dark place. And we need a savior. Yeah. We need a savior. We need someone to come along and with the wave of a sword or a wand, make it all better. Um, Let's hear the wrap of Trump's speech, and then we'll have a break, and then we'll come back with more. We will make America proud again. We will make America safe again. And we will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. Support for NPR Politics and the following message comes from Starry Station, the touchscreen router for fast Wi-Fi. Starry Station was designed to give you a better way to game, stream, and surf throughout your home. You can see your entire network at a glance, get suggestions on how to fix problems, and finally know if you're getting the internet speed you pay for. It even has parental controls that let you block usage on specific devices during certain hours of the day. Learn more about Starry Station at starry.com politics. Hey, this is Carter Matier. I'm here from the Republican National Convention in Cleveland, Ohio, as an alternate delegate from the great state of Colorado. Before we get back to the show, if you want to hear about some great conversations, check out Terry Gross in her interview show, Fresh Air. On any given day, you will hear Questlove tell a story about a ping pong duel between Prince and Jimmy Fallon. You will hear writer Sarah Hepelaw talk about rethinking her sex life after she quit drinking. You will also hear New Yorker journalist Evan Osnos explain handguns in America. Those and other interviews on the Fresh Air podcast. Get it on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. Okay, back to the show. 
That was clutch, dude. That, that was really? money. Yeah. You were good. Thanks. You Thanks. got a future. Thanks. Ah. <laughs> okay, we're back. I kind of want to hit on a thing about Trump's speech before we move on to Ivanka uh, that really sat with me. I think what I saw and heard in this speech felt like a certain kind of scapegoating. The, the problems that Trump described had clear sources, right? You know, it was our allies for not doing the right things that led that lead to America's weakness. Um, it was ISIS Refugees. and shooters that Bad make leaders. us unsafe. Mm-hmm. It was, you know, blacks and Latinos who were suffering from XYZ that aren't being productive members of society. I, did that stick out to you guys? There were, it wasn't just that there were problems that Trump wanted to fix. It was that there were problem makers that were very specific. To me, it seems that the undercurrent in all this is Trump saying, has it ever occurred to you that everything that's wrong in the world is somebody else's fault? Because it's really not your fault. You don't think so. I don't think so. It's not my fault. It's somebody else's fault. And I'm going to tell you who else's fault it is. And he ran through the catalog for 90 minutes. And I'm not here to say that he was right or wrong on it, but I noticed it. And I noticed him saying, not just, you don't win. He was saying, you don't win because of XYZ. Bad countries. Bad people. And... Is this the kind of campaign that works in a general? I think the the question for Trump is whether he can talk about these issues and convince people that he's not scapegoating. I think because Trump often talks in these broad themes, he doesn't always explain, well, well, what's your theory about why that is or what to do about it? And so... Uh, you know, clearly, based on polling, uh, I mean, his his poll numbers among African-Americans are what? just One just, poll said zero percent. Just about recently. zero. He's not persuading African-Americans that when he says, I want to fix the system for working people, that he's talking to African-Americans. And he's got to fix that fast if he... W- well, I mean, it's possible that he could win the election without the black vote. And it's not as if any other Republican candidate would seemingly do particularly well with the black vote, given previous trends. But you're right. I mean, in terms of other demographic groups, and like Latinos, turns like women, it, like I a mean, lot of lots people. of people. We never got a demographic breakdown of the delegates for this convention, which I have never seen before. Well, there's some counts that say there were 18 black yes. delegates. So some people have tried to do some research to actually figure out what the demographic characteristics of the 2,472 delegates actually were. Because some of the numbers that did come out were distorted by some of the alternates. But anyway, if we look at the actual delegates, one researcher said 18 African-Americans. We probably saw nearly that many people speak on the dais who were African-American in the course of the four days. So we got the impression of some diversity from the program. But out in the actual seats, maybe 18 out of 2,472. And there wasn't a diversity of rhetoric. I know we don't pass judgment on this podcast. We don't take sides. But I got to say, as a black man on that floor tonight for that speech, there were a few weird moments for me where I didn't know who he was talking about and what he meant by it. Yeah. All right. We got deep there. Bear with us. Um, Did anybody else in the entire week have a wind machine on their hair? I know who you're talking about. Taking it lighter a little bit. Ivanka Trump, who introduced her father. I do believe she had a wind machine I mean, blowing I don't her hair. I mean, I actually go anywhere without a wind machine, you guys. <laughs> I liked it. I'm not saying I, I actually liked it. I thought her speech was really, really good. I think she's so poised. Uh, people on both sides of the aisle love her, she and I see why. Like many of my fellow millennials, I do not consider myself categorically Republican or Democrat. More than party affiliation, I vote based on what I believe is right for my family and for my country. 
Sometimes it's a tough choice. That is not the case this time. As the proud daughter of your nominee, I am here to tell you that this is the moment and Donald Trump is the person to make America great again. She is 100% gifted and she really crosses lines. She has outreach to young people, to women, to Democrats, and to people who are all three. So, you know, she's golden. Yeah. They cannot make too much use of her. And she spent a lot of time talking about working mothers. As president, my father will change the labor laws that were put in place at a time when women were not a significant portion of the workforce. And he will focus on making quality childcare affordable and accessible for all. And equal pay. He will fight for equal pay, for equal work, and I will fight for this too, right alongside of him. And things of that nature that would not seem out of place in a democratic stump speech, and right? And almost talking about, I mean, she said something about wanting to revise, you know, labor laws and regulations that were made at a time when women really were not really part of the workforce. So, like, this idea of, like, systematic sexism, which is, you know, something that you hear way about way more often from liberals and Democrats than you do from Republicans. So was this a way for the party and Trump to start appealing to moderates and Democrats? 100%. Plus, of course, let's not forget, she's also Donald Trump's daughter. And he and I would argue the jewel in the crown, the apple of his eye, whatever cliche you want to choose. <laughs> she is the foremost paradigmatic re-expression of Donald Trump in a new generation. Yes. So he would want her out there, no matter what her viewpoint was. She could sound like Sarah Palin, he'd want her out there. But because she has all these other characteristics of political outreach, there's all the more reason to put her out there. But, you know, Hillary Clinton should really watch her back with this because these these are themes that she has built her career around. And Ivanka is a very effective messenger about some of these issues. So we end this convention with Wednesday being a night of shout and bombast. And it seemed like to me the first three nights were full of shout and bombast. But day four, or night four, was on message. The theme was Make America One Again. Lots of the speakers touched on ideas of unity. And my question is, does night four overshadow nights one, two, and three? It always does. The night that people remember from conventions is the last night. The only possible exception would be if there were something just truly mind-bendingly weird in one of the other nights that you could never get out of your mind. But I want to remember Ted Cruz drama for the rest of my life. Well, this, is, this was a highly unusual thing. We haven't seen anything that disruptive at a Republican convention in half a century. Yeah. So that's going to live on. It's certainly going to have a profound effect on Ted Cruz's future, I believe. Helpful or hurtful? Well, hurtful, I would think, in the long run, huh. although there are those who think he will emerge as the great you know, advocate of principle, the last defender of the faith. Uh, and if Donald Trump goes down in flames, he'll be the guy who warned everybody off. Just as likely, he'll take some of the blame. I think there's a great danger for Ted Cruz that he is this election cycle's uh, essentially Mike Huckabee or Rick Santorum, mm. you know, the darling of the evangelical right, you know, successful in places like Iowa, but ultimately didn't make it. And, you know, in four years, they're on to someone else. Looking forward, what does Hillary Clinton need to do in light of this week? What does the DNC need to do in light of this week of conventioning? You know, if there's anything we didn't hear this week from the Republicans, it was a lot of sort of positive what are we going to do, vision for the future. There's a lot of we're going to, you know, take back our country. We're going to solve problems. 
we're going to defeat Hillary Clinton. There was a lot of anti-Hillary Clinton rhetoric, but not so much the inspiring, expansive, hopeful, optimistic, look to the future, this is what we will do. And to me, that's the opportunity that Democrats have, is to not just be anti-Trump, although they will need to be anti-Trump, but they need to also go beyond that. And they need to say to the American people, here's what we will do and can do for you. Uh, it's hard, though, to follow. You know, President Obama was the hope and change candidate. And, you know, eight years later, at least covering Republicans, a lot of people I talk to don't feel hopeful. like the country is where they want it to be. They're not hopeful. So, you know, it's a tough road, I think, for the Democrats that way. The Democrats need to have a convention that looks like America, and to use the phrase that they've used in the past, should, and it will, have tremendous diversity among the delegates and among the alternates and among all the people attending. Uh, it needs to be much more, I think, light. It needs to, and I don't mean by that unserious, but just emphasis on the light and not the dark, what is good, what is, frankly, not good and needs to be dealt with, but with emphasis on what has been done to make progress in that direction with respect to health care. We didn't hear very much about health care at this convention. They said, said they were going to repeal Obamacare, of course, but we didn't hear much about health care. We didn't hear much about all of those kinds of issues. So the Democrats need to be very positive about what has changed in the last eight years, remind people of why Barack Obama is still above water in terms of his presidential approval rating, remind people of where we were in 2008, remind people how much this speech of Donald Trump's is really just a recycling of the 1992 Pat Buchanan cultural wars speech at the Houston convention and really make their case, but do it with a little more humor. We didn't have much humor at this convention. A little more lightness, a lot more diversity, and, you know, maybe just a touch of good feeling and love. Okay, they are literally breaking this building down around us. we got to get out of this space. But last quick question. Hillary may announce her VP pick pretty soon, correct? Tomorrow. Today. Friday. Yeah, we're into Friday. It's Friday now. It is Friday. And it may be later this afternoon. Um, Who's it going to be? I guess my money is still on Tim Kaine, although Tom Vilzak has come up very, very fast on the outside lane in the last few days. Yeah. So it might be Friday. It might be later, right? It might be Saturday. They had originally kind of indicated Saturday, but then they reopened the possibility of it being on Friday. And what we've all been speculating was if Donald Trump has a great last night, they'll do it Friday so as to step on his story. And if he doesn't, if day four or night four is as bad as night three, then maybe the Democrats would let that sort of play for a day before they went to their big news story on Saturday. So our money's on Friday then? Yeah, I think our money's on Friday now. Okay, so if that happens tomorrow, we'll try to get you a quick episode here from Cleveland. If we get the word on Saturday, you'll probably won't hear from us until Sunday. Because on Saturday, the Pod Squad will be basically all over the place, traveling to Philadelphia and other places to get ready to do this all over again. Anyways, let's get out of here. I need to go sleep. Ron, this is tiring. No one told me how tiring this would be. It's exhausting, but wait till you get to next week. But before we wrap up, I just got to say, this has been... Uh, an unbelievably awesome week to get all of the support that we've gotten from these podcast listeners out here. Woo-hoo. You guys are great. Um, Absolutely. I have seen so many s- listeners on the floor of this convention hall, out and about in the streets of Cleveland, and so much love on social media. And I creep on all those likes and comments and Instagram uh, sidebars. 
thank you guys for the support. It keeps us going. Yeah, it's we had a we had a, a podcast listener come by with his dad. He's from Massachusetts. His dad's a conservative from South Dakota. They just stopped by the NPR booth here. And they both they just, listen? Yeah, and they're Aww. here. Like They said it was sort of like their father's son. Like Instead of a fishing trip, they'd gone to the RNC. And I just thought it was adorable. Well, he, at least the younger, the son listens. I'm not sure if the dad listens. But yeah, no, that kind of thing is so sweet. And it's, yeah, it's just a reflection of what a great audience we have. Listeners, they're better than sleeper food. On that note, we are on the radio all this weekend, too. Yes, the radio. That thing. Uh, yeah. Listen morning and, and afternoons. Find your local station at npr.org slash stations. And, of course, thanks to the team that you don't hear, um, our magical wizard of a producer, Brent Bachman. And don't Brent you cut that out. Yay. I called you wizard. Brent Keep it in. Keep it in, Brent. Our amazing fact checker, Barbara Sprunt. And... The one who holds us, us all together, the glue, Beth Donovan, our fearless leader. She's right here listening. She is. She's in always this little listening. studio. We love you. <laughs> Thank them all for staying up even later than we are to keep this thing going. We'll be back with daily episodes Tuesday, July 26th, after the Democratic convention kicks off in Philadelphia. I'm Sam Sanders, campaign reporter. Sarah McCammon, campaign reporter. Ron Elving, editor correspondent. Ron Elving's eyes are asleep. We got to go home. We're going <laughs> He's home. Leaning on the table. We're going home. That's correct. Thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast.